Today I'm going to talk about the, uh, the Buddha's enlightenment, as it is usually called. Yesterday um, we got to the point where uh, Siddhartha Gautama had more or less come to a dead end. His life in the world had not fulfilled him and nor had the available forms of spiritual religious practice that were available in India at that time. And this had brought him to what I can only really imagine to have been a crisis of some kind, uh, possibly even some sort of breakdown. We don't know. But for a young man who clearly is um, highly intelligent, um, seems to be driven by some quest, what he calls the Arya Pariyasana, the, the noble quest, he's got himself into a situation where all available avenues, that of the world, that of the religious life, seem to have brought him simply up against a brick wall. And he finds himself, therefore, um, you know, stuck. He's with himself. He's back with the very questions that had been prompting him and niggling away, one imagines, uh, for all of these years. Now, the, the story is that he's at Uruvela, which is now called uh, Botgaya. But, of course, at that time it was simply a forested area on the banks of the Nairanjara River, which still exists today, and he sat beneath a tree. Now, one shouldn't make too much of this tree. The peepal tree is a very, very common tree in India, and it has the advantage that when it grows large, it affords a great deal of shade, and it could well have been just one of many trees in that area. Now, there are, of course many um, accounts of what this enlightenment um, was about. And I'm sure if you've read on Buddhism or have trained or studied in a Buddhist tradition, you will have been uh, given some idea as to what constituted uh, this pivotal moment, not only for Siddhartha Gautama, but for everything that subsequently followed, everything we call Buddhism. Now, I think there's already a problem in the fact that we use this word enlightenment. Uh, the original term does not uh, play on the metaphor of light, illumination. Although the Buddha does sometimes use those metaphors to talk of his experience, the key word uh, is bodhi. Now, bodhi is not a term that we find used um, in the pre-existent Indian literature to describe this kind of experience. Uh, the word that would have been used in the Upanishads would have been moksha. Again, the Buddha does sometimes use that term, but I think it's a, uh, an important uh, shift of emphasis that rather than speaking of having realized liberation, he speaks of having uh, woken up that's what the word bodhi 
literally means. He's woken up. So rather than take the metaphor of light, which of course is a common one throughout all religious and spiritual traditions, he chooses a very different metaphor, the metaphor of waking up. In other words, how he describes this moment or this sequence of moments, we don't really know, is, is, is in a language that compares it to the experience we have every morning when we wake up. What's it like when you wake up? You wake up either from a deep sleep or you wake up from a dream. And upon waking up, you find yourself once more in a shared world of other people, other things, a phenomenal array of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches. You are back again in the sensorial world, in the world of specific events that are not, as in a dream, simply features of your own imagination or your own unconscious or however you understand dreaming. And you're clearly not any longer in a state of deep sleep where you're simply not conscious at all. So the Buddha's experience was... Um, compared, therefore, to um, encountering the waking world as though for the first time he woke up to what it is to be in the midst of these things. It's an, uh, a recovery, uh, perhaps even a, a discovery of the phenomenal world itself, of the conditioned world of the impermanent world, of the suffering world. That is what he woke up to. And I'd like to give um, his own account of this. Uh, this is in the, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the discourse on the Noble Quest. It's, for those of you who are interested, number 26 in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings. And this is how I've translated it. The Buddha says, This Dhamma, this Dhamma, Dharma, I have reached, is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle and sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground. This conditions that. Conditioned arising. That's all he says. Well, he says another bit too, which we'll go on to. But... What is striking about this passage um, is not so much in what it says, although I think that's quite remarkable too, but it's also worth pointing out what it doesn't say. Because often when we are told about the Buddha's enlightenment, when I was trained as a monk, and both in the Tibetan and in the Zen traditions, the sense of the enlightenment was primarily that he, 
he came to understand something, something we might call the truth or reality. That he had some kind of mystical insight into the nature of things. In most traditions, they'll say he gained some kind of unmediated access to the ultimate nature of reality. That he discovered what was really true. But curiously, none of that language is used here. In this entire passage, there's not a single word that is rooted in, in, in the Pali or Sanskrit root, jnā, to know. He doesn't mention knowing at all. He doesn't mention um, uh, truth, the word truth, at all. He doesn't mention anything like the unconditioned or emptiness or the true mind or whatever it might be. None of that language is here. And yet that is so prevalent in pretty much every form of Buddhism that we will encounter today. The Buddha's enlightenment was his awakening or his understanding, his insight into the ultimate nature of reality, into truth with a capital T. But this, I feel, is exactly the kind of language the Buddha was seeking to break free from. And instead, he simply describes what he has understood as this Dhamma. Dhamma is very difficult to translate, but it doesn't really mean truth. It basically means something like this thing. This thing I've reached. Dhamma, as we know, can mean both Sabadhamma, which means all things, or it can mean the Dhamma that one takes refuge in, for example, as a Buddhist, which means, one might loosely say it in idiomatic English, the Buddha's thing. That was, this, this is his thing. His idea. Dhamma is a very, very tricky word. It also suggests a kind of law, a kind of principle perhaps. But it's probably best to leave it untranslated. So this thing he's arrived at is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to and so on, not confined by thought. It's not just a conceptual idea. It's not a philosophical concept. It's subtle and it's sensed by the wise. The word in Pali uh, here is rooted in the word Vedana, which means to feel or to sense something, to intuit something, to feel something. So that's the first sketch he gives. And then he says, but people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. And it is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground so we find here two words, place and ground, alaya and tana, which, if you look it up in the dictionary, mean pretty much the same thing, place and ground. But the Buddha clearly gives them a distinctive um, significance. The word alaya 
We all know it. Each time we say the word Himalaya or Himalaya, Himalaya means the place, Alaya, of the Himma, snow. The Himalaya. So Alaya is a common word in Pali and Sanskrit. In later Buddhist schools, they talk about the Alaya Vijnana, the foundation consciousness, the consciousness that is at the base. And then the other word he uses is Tana. Now Tana, very difficult to translate, but again, it means something like the ground or the base or the foundation. I was um, discussing this with a Theravada monk called Ajahn Tanisaro last year, who's translated a lot of this stuff. And he told me that Tana also means uh, uh, the tonic in musical theory, the keynote. It has that connotation as well, which the Buddha probably would have been aware of, particularly if he had done a few music classes at Taxila, (laughs) which is cheating a bit, of course, he may never have done that. (laughs) But um, the point is the word Tana, he could have, I mean, interestingly, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of this passage, he says, it is hard to see this truth. Now, it's not, I thought all along that the word must be satya or satya, which means truth. But when I looked it up in Pali, it's no such thing. It's this strange word, tana, which means ground, which means keynote. So the Buddha's describing this awakening as essentially a kind of existential shift from being attached to delighting in and reveling in a place to this understanding, this seeing, this vision, this encounter with a ground. Now the whole, if you look at, if you analyze this passage, It's all very much in keeping with the metaphor of a journey. After all, the text is called the Arya Pariyasana, which means the noble quest or search. And it opens with the idea, this Dhamma I have reached, adigato, this, this place that I've got to. And then he speaks of moving from a place to a ground. The way the passage is structured is primarily about a shift in perspective. Now let's try and understand what that shift in perspective might be. We've already seen, in the course of his own life up until this point, he's been going from one place to the next. And of course, very crucially, when he he gets to this point at the age of 29, he decides to... Um, as the classical phrase has it, to leave home for homelessness. Now, home is very much the preeminent metaphor of one's place. It's one's home. 
And the Buddha breaks with that and goes into homelessness, the open road in this case. So let's try to unpack what we mean by home or place, as the term he uses here, and what it means to delight and revel in one's place. This we can see extending from an attachment or an identification with a physical place, one's country, one's hometown, one's village, or quite specifically, one's house. We can also see place as being one's place or position in society. What you identify with as your as your role in the world, that I am a Buddhist teacher, I am a website designer, I am a healthcare worker, or whatever it might be. And again, we have to be careful here. The Buddha is not saying all place, all home is somehow wrong, bad. No matter what the Buddha did or didn't do, he couldn't ever escape having been born in Kosala, in Shakya. That was his place. That was his home. He can't ever abandon that. Any more than he could abandon the position at which he then achieves as a teacher, as a Buddha, as an awakened one. The problem doesn't lie in the fact that we have a location in the world or in society, the problem lies, as it says quite clearly here, are delighting and reveling in that. Because what this sense of place gives us is a sense of security, a sense that by attaching oneself to this identity, we somehow secure ourselves in the midst of an otherwise highly insecure world insecure in the sense that ultimately it's all going to stop we're going to die or our country will be invaded or there'll be a natural disaster or we'll be fired from our job or whatever it might be but ultimately however much we identify and uh, attach ourselves to any sort of place or identity or role or position, that's not going to, in the end, secure us or provide us with any kind of permanence in the midst of an inherently unstable and impermanent society. So the Buddha's not, in that going so absurdly far, as rejecting all place. I suspect if there had been a football team in Kapalavastu, let's call it Kapalavastu Wanderers, <laughs> I suspect he would have supported that team. <laughs> I don't think he would have been indifferent if they won or lost. Now, seriously, it, 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 there's this idea that we have sometimes that the, the, the Buddha is, is so far above everything that any concern for anything to do with his place or time or family is somehow irrelevant. It's not. And as we'll see, the Buddha, 
although he leaves his home behind and goes off into the open road to become a monk, when you start reconstructing what happened after the Enlightenment for the remaining 45 years of his, his teaching life, he's constantly involved with his family. His main supporters are his cousins, his, his um, half-brother, his son. They all join in. He's constantly going back to Shakya, sorting out their local problems. And as we'll see towards the end of the Buddha's life, it's because of his, the ambitions of his family members that things start to go rather wrong. And he's implicated in all this. So we shouldn't be so naive as to think that it's about cutting oneself off totally from any sense of identity. The difference lies in our relationship to that identity. That's the important thing. The attachment, in other words, the the clinging and the holding and the grasping onto me being an Englishman, me being a teacher, me being a son, a husband, or whatever it might be. So it's this delight and reveling, this attachment, this clinging on to place that has the um, unfortunate consequence of blinding us to our ground. As the Buddha says, it's hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground. So the real problem of being attached to an identity and again, we could extend this also psychologically into our, our ego identity. I mean, we may lose our home, we may lose our position in society, we might lose our job, but still, at least, we have me to rely on. I may be terribly alone, I may feel terribly bereft, but there's something constant deep down in myself that I feel to be what I really am, me. We also need, I think, when we're talking about place, to include our religious or spiritual identity. I am a Buddhist. I am a Christian. I am a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jew. That, of course, is a very important place that people get very attached to, as we know all too well. And Buddhism is certainly not immune to this. Buddhists can be just as fanatical as anybody else. You might have noticed this. I'm probably a good example. (laughs) But the problem with all of these attachments, no matter to how noble it is and how, how, um, how spiritual it is, is that that too closes us down. It cuts us off from our ground. It's a kind of blinker. It disables us from experiencing the very ground of our life. Now what is this ground then, this tana? The Buddha describes it in a single long sequence of syllables in Pali. Idda pachayata paticca samuppada. And that we have to break down in English, but I like to think of it as just one long string of ideas. I mean, this is the case in, 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 uh, in some of these early languages. Uh, the words are not differentiated on the page. 
just the syllables, just one long stream. Idapacheata literally means the this conditioned, the this conditioned. He says, idam tanam, this ground, the this conditioned, conditioned arising. Now, I think one word here that's important is actually the word this, idam, ida. This is what is technically called a deictic pronoun. A deictic pronoun is a pronoun that points to something specific, you know, this clock, that microphone. We, 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 the Buddha's concerned with specificity. It's a very difficult passage to translate. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as specific conditionality. That's actually quite good. But again, the word specific is not actually there. The word is just this. Ajahn Tanisaro translates it as this, that conditionality. He, he, he sticks more with the, with the deictic word itself. I've experimented with this conditions that. The point is that the Buddha's uh, uh, opening to this ground is an opening to what is specific. In other words, the leaves on the tree, the grass growing on the lawn, the sound of the lawnmower across the way, the rain pattering on the roof. And of course, in many Buddhist traditions, particularly in East Asia, particularly in Zen, there is a very um, uh, refined aesthetic of the particular. You don't find that so much in Indian culture as a whole. Uh, in, in, in East Asia, though, I think one of the things that I, I love most about Zen is that it is its relentless attention to the specific. A, a, a monk once asked the Zen master Yunmen, who lived in 9th century China, what is the greatest and highest teaching of all the Buddhas and the patriarchs? And Yunmen replied, cake. <laughs> Now, I like to think that he probably had a bit of cake on his table or something. He just said, cake. Why did Bodhidharma come to the West? Or come from the West? Answer, the cypress tree in the courtyard. In other words, turning the mind away from some grand abstract truth, some high teaching, and pointing deictically to something specific a thing in the world. So the Buddha talks of itapachiyata, the this conditioned, the world that comes about through the interactions of specific things. And perhaps a, a good example of this is found in um, a very famous passage that recurs frequently in the Pali Canon. When the Buddha teases out what he means by conditioned arising. He says, he's talking to a, uh, an ascetic called Udayin. And he says, let be the past, Udayin, 
Let be the future. I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. And as you can see here very clearly, the whole passage turns around the use of the deictic pronoun this and that. When this is, that happens. When there's a seed of um, a mango tree, a mango tree comes about. If there's not the seed of the mango tree, the mango tree won't happen. So for the Buddha, the Dhamma, again, is what not, it's not only the specific this and that, but also paying attention to that in this specific moment. Let be the past, let be the future, I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that arises. Now, again, referring back to what I, I spoke of yesterday, this is very much um, at odds with the culture, the religious culture of his time. As we saw yesterday in the Brajyanaranika Upanishad, the whole emphasis is not on paying attention to the specific things of the world and how they come about one dependent on the other through causality and relationship, but it's neti, neti, not this, not this. What you really are, your true self, your true nature, cannot be identified with anything in the phenomenal world. At all. You need to notice that. You need to see how you, you grasp and you identify and you become drawn into the illusory world of appearance. And in seeing that, you say, I am not this. I am not that. Implying that I, or consciousness, or mind, or spirit, or the divine, is something not reducible, not identifiable, has nothing essentially to do with the illusory world. And the Buddha's doing exactly the opposite. Instead of saying, not this, not this, he's saying, this, that, this, these, those. And when this gets uh, translated into... Into, uh, into meditation practice, it becomes the practice of sati patana. Sati patana literally means the grounding of attention. Sati means attention or recollection or mindfulness, and patana means to ground the mindfulness. Now, what is striking is this word patana is exactly the same uh, root as the word tana. This ground is idam tanang, tana, and the practice of mindfulness is said to be patana. Same word, exactly the same word. 
So the Buddha uses this word ground both to describe the, speci- the, the, the specificity of our field of awareness and the things within that field of awareness, but he also uses it in a verbal form to describe the grounding of our attention in the specific unfolding of the phenomenal world. And so when he um, introduces the practice of uh, mindfulness, which he describes as uh, the ekkamaga, and Buddhist translators not wanting to sound sectarian or snooty, refuse to translate it as the only way. They, they, here they say the direct path, but actually it means the only way. <laughs> it means the one way, literally. And from the Buddha's point of view, this is the one way to experience this ground to which he has woken up to, namely by paying close attention to the impermanent, suffering, impersonal world of moment-to-moment experience. And so he describes how a monk who has gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut sits down and having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness or grounded mindfulness in front of him, ever mindful he breathes in, ever mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. And breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. And then, he, then he breathing in short, etc., etc. So here we have a very uh, concrete um, uh, illustration of how this principle of this gives rise to that, conditioned arising, is actually attended to in awareness, in consciousness. You take something as basic and as simple as your breathing. And instead of trying to control the breath to get you into some kind of higher state of mind, which would probably have been part of the yogic tradition that would have existed at his time, he just says, notice the breath. Don't do anything to it. Just notice it. When you breathe out long, you say, ah, I'm breathing out long. When you breathe out short, you notice, ah, I'm breathing out short. Terribly simple, but, as you've probably discovered, not terribly easy. The mind would rather do anything than that. Even the most crazy, chaotic fantasy or daydream will be preferable to just watching the breath. We may not tell ourselves that, that may not be what we believe, but when we sit down to do it, you know how quickly it is the mind will jump off to something else. Usually something pretty abstract, a memory or a plan or a fantasy or something like that. It's actually very difficult to stay with the breath to stay with the moment, to stay with any particular object in our field of of sensory awareness. 
We much prefer to somehow be elsewhere. And so this wanting to be elsewhere is in a way our attachment to some sort of place or identity. Look at your fantasies every now and again. They'll almost invariably revolve around you, me, my case Stephen. What Stephen's done, what Stephen's going to do, what Stephen would like to do, what Stephen's afraid of doing. It's all the story of me somehow constantly reassuring myself that I'm okay and I'm here and this is going to happen and that happened. But I don't. With every moment I spend wandering off in some story, I'm not then attending to this ground. And that's, of course, how we can see that the practice of mindfulness is simply putting into practice what the Buddha woke up to. In other words, training ourselves to ground our experience, our awareness, in the specifics of life itself. And then the Buddha teases this out, and he uh, teases this out still further in, in the same text. This is the Satipatthana Sutta. And again, monks, a monk who acts in full awareness when... Uh, yeah, a monk is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending his limbs, when wearing his robes and carrying his bowl, when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. In other words, he just lists the everyday most mundane things that we do all the time. And he invites us to turn our attention to that. And that is really the essence of what is involved in the practice of mindfulness. But it's not just about noticing specific things. What is more crucial is noting how specific things are causes and effects. That this conditions that, conditioned arising. He's inviting us not just to sort of gaze at a flower, but to understand how the flower has arisen from a cause, how it is likewise the seed or contains the seed of future flowers, that it's not something standing isolate and alone. It is transient, it is living, it is moving, it is generating. It's integral to the whole system of life itself. And likewise with our own minds. And this is where the practice becomes one in which we begin to understand what states of mind, particularly states of mind, let's say, like attachment and greed and hatred and fear, to see these things not just as mental states, 
irrespective of conditions, but to see that these have consequences, they have results, they cause us pain, they cause other people pain. And to notice how other frames of mind, typically the virtues such as generosity and kindness and tolerance and love and wisdom, that these are, 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 are values not in and of themselves, but because of the consequences they produce. Although it's rather unfashionable, the Buddha was primarily concerned with causal linearity. That to begin to understand more clearly what it is that we do, moment to moment, in our innermost private life, what is it that we do that pays off or turns into anxiety, worry, frustration, pain, and all of the various psychological and social um, discomforts and anxieties and breakdowns and disasters that we continuously seem to be feeding somehow. And of course, is it possible, therefore, by understanding these processes, to no longer live in this world conditioned by greed, conditioned by hatred? We can see these things for what they are, but we don't have to act upon them. This is, I think, a very important point. And when we look at the, um, the next level at which the Buddha teases out the principle of conditioned arising, we find this famous but rather difficult to understand sequence of what are called the 12 links of conditioned arising or dependent origination. Um, take too long to go into all of that, but the crucial practical links are the links which read independence upon the sensory world, there arises contact. Independence upon contact arises feeling. And independence upon feeling arises craving. Now, this is a description of a, um, it's a breakdown of what's happening very rapidly in every moment of our lives. Our body, organism, brain, mind is impacted by something from the world. A smell, a sound, a taste, a touch, a thought. That generates immediately a feeling. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or not particularly one or the other. And in dependence upon that subjective response we have to our contact with the world, we then are prone by habit to grab at what's pleasant and try to prolong it or get more of it and to reject or to um, uh, push aside what feels unpleasant. And this is certainly 
simply uh, how we have evolved biologically. That's how we've survived, by getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want. That's how our ancestors for the last millions and millions of years have managed to um, live, to survive. But from the Buddha's point of view, and I think probably from any kind of cultured or civilized point of view, that pure biologically driven habit is past its sell-by date. That this grasping and hating is actually causing more problems now than any benefits. Can we live in another way? Can we acknowledge these drives within us, these cravings? And remember, craving is not equivalent just to desire. Craving is also at the root of hatred, the craving to be rid of something, as opposed to the craving to get something. And the Buddha is saying, when you feel pleasure, when you feel pain, and you notice the first stirrings of craving to get, to get rid of, you simply notice that. You don't identify with it. You don't buy into it. And that's, of course, what we're working with when we sit here or when we walk outside. We notice what's going on and we notice all kinds of reactions and responses occurring in our mind. We don't demonize that. We don't say, this is terrible, this is wrong. We just say, if I act in such a way, it will give rise to such an effect. If I, if I live my life dominated by greed and hatred, it's not going to provide or lead me to the kind of personal or social well-being that I aspire for. So we see how this craving gives rise to that, very often, pain. So knowing that, we stay with it when it occurs, we notice it bubbling up, but we don't react. We simply see it for what it is. We see what's happening. Um, the word the Buddha uses for this is sometimes almost invariably translated to see things as they are. The word in Pali is yata bhutang. It doesn't mean to see things as they are. It means to see things, to see how things happen. Bhutang means to arise, to come about, to happen. The Buddha's concerned with understanding how things happen. He's not interested in understanding what things are. He's not, an, to put it in philosophical language, he's not interested in ontology. Although much later Buddhism has become terribly interested in ontology. Ontology just means um, how we think about the nature of being or reality what things really are. The Buddha doesn't have any interest in that. He's interested in how things happen. He's interested in what it is that causes suffering. He's interested in what it is that leads to the absence of craving, the freedom 
from attachment. And in that sense, the Buddha is not only an existentialist, in that he gives primacy to what is existing rather than what is mysteriously and essentially the true nature of things. But he's also a pragmatist. He's concerned really with what works and what doesn't work, not with what is true and what is false. So this whole idea of conditioned arising, therefore, is about a whole new way of paying attention to our experience in such a way that we become more refined and attuned to the processes in our life, our inner processes, our social relations, and understanding through observation, not through theory, what the consequences and effects of particular states of mind are. And this is what leads to nibbana, to the the letting go of craving, the letting go of grasping, and that will come on to tomorrow or the next day. It's also, I think, worth pointing out that uh, the Buddha, in saying all of this, um, is very much breaking with tradition. He says later on in the same passage, he says that what he has discovered goes against the stream. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't, it's not the language either of common sense or the language that is enshrined in a great deal of religious teaching, where the idea really is so often that the goal of a spiritual or a religious quest is to... <clears throat> is to discover something within ourselves or within reality that is outside of conditionality, that is unconditioned, that is unformed, that is beyond impermanence. And this, of course, in most, cult- in most religious cultures, is called God. In Indian religious culture, God is profoundly identified with consciousness, with pure knowing, pure awareness. And the Buddha takes very clear uh, exception to this idea. Um, This is a good example. This is from the Mahatanha Sankhaya Sutta, which is number 38 in the Middle Length Discourses. And so here we have um, a person called Sati, the fisherman's son, um, who comes to the Buddha and says, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Buddha, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths and not another. And what is that consciousness, Sati, says the Buddha? That consciousness is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. And the Buddha says, misguided man. (laughs) To whom have you ever known me to teach the Dhamma in that way? Misguided man. In many discourses, have I not stated that consciousness is dependently arisen? Since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness, 
Now, this, of course, probably for many of us Buddhists, sounds a bit shocking. Well, surely there is a consciousness that goes from life to life. Isn't that what it's all about? <clears throat> the Buddha's saying no. And then he gives some examples. He says, consciousness is reckoned by the particular condition dependent upon which it arises. When consciousness arises dependent on the eye and forms, it is reckoned as eye consciousness. When consciousness arises dependent on the ear and sounds, it's reckoned as ear consciousness. And then he gives examples. When he says it's like, it's like fire. Fires are, re- are recognized by the particular condition dependent upon which they burn. When fire burns dependent on logs, it's called a log fire. When dependent on grass, a grass fire. When dependent on cow dung, a cow dung fire. Now what this states very clearly is that for the Buddha, consciousness is not some mysterious sort of animating principle that is there all along somehow shining out onto the world which is our kind of common sense intuitive understanding and it's also that in which Brahmanic Hinduism believes to be the case as well in a more profound sense but no consciousness is what we would now call an emergent property of a complex interactive system. Consciousness comes about when conditions arise. When those conditions have gone, that consciousness can no longer be said to be there. So visual consciousness is the product of an eye organ coming into contact with a shape or a colour. When those two come together, eye consciousness emerges. If you shut your eyes, eye consciousness ceases. And the same with any act of consciousness. Now this is quite literally turning the whole uh, religious philosophy of Brahmanic um, thought on its head where consciousness is understood to be at the very source of all being, to be commensurable with the divine. And here's the Buddha saying, no, it's not. It just comes about when the organism comes into contact with some object in the world. And when that encounter is finished, that consciousness is gone. So, in... What is particularly striking about these sorts of passages is that they also run up, they also seem to to, to conflict with um, a lot of what is presented to us as Buddhism, particularly as Buddhism evolved in India and then later in, in Tibet and in China. More and more, there came to be this privileging of mind or consciousness, usually capitalized. That's the best. As soon as someone writes mind with a capital M, then that's just not any old mind, but that's kind of super mind. Some sort of spiritual principle, some kind of pristine awareness or something that is not contingent upon the world, 
but somehow is prior to it, more fundamental than it. And the Buddha's rejecting all of that. And he's bringing us into, uh, or he's, in, he's inviting us, he's not bringing us, he's inviting us uh, to pay attention to things from a totally new perspective. You know, conditioned arising. I mean, it must have been quite a shock if you were a Brahmin priest at this time um, to be told that your meditation is, is, uh, is, is about noticing more clearly when you are pissing and shitting. But that's what the Buddha says. I mean, they translate it urinating and defecating. But basically, it's, uh, this is real provocation. Real provocation. Even today, it sounds a little bit... It's not the sort of thing you say in a polite meditation center or a church. And then he's saying that consciousness, it's not an underlying principle at all. It's simply a, a phenomenal appearance, like everything else. And there's another passage which we don't have time to look at, in which he says... Um, then it occurred to me, monks, consciousness does not go back beyond name and form. That's a highly technical expression. But name and form is what in the Upanishads refers to the phenomenal world of appearance. And the Buddha's saying, consciousness does not go back any further than that. It's part of the phenomenal world of appearance. So I think, we have to stop now, I think we get a glimpse in these passages and I have to confess, I am selecting these passages. You can also find passages which are not exactly in this vein. But there's a consistent thread running through these early discourses in which there is a radical and uncompromising emphasis on phenomenality, on immediacy, on the conditions of our existence here and now on our awareness and our appreciation and our encounter with the phenomenal world, on an engagement with the process of cause and effect, noticing how our intentions give rise to actions which have consequences. It's all about turning one's mind to what is apparent, to what is Phenomenal. Phenomenon comes from the Greek word to appear. What appears. And there's no suggestion that there's anything, God or mind or spirit or the Tao or whatever it is, that somehow lies behind or below or above the realm of phenomenal appearance. Somehow propping it up, keeping it going. And it's in that sense that I think we can say that the Buddha is also an atheist. Uh, he's quite clearly leaving no room, and even in some passages explicitly not only denying, but actually slightly mocking the idea of some transcendent reality, some greater ultimate truth. We stop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.